Hi, this is Pastor Wilson with Renew Church OC. Thanks for joining our podcast. We're walking through the book of Luke, thinking about what it means to follow Jesus, to see the world the way he does, and to integrate his patterns into our life. I hope you enjoyed the sermon today. I also wanted to point you to the description section where you can find the church's website. We would love for you to visit our church and consider investing in our ministry. There's two other links. One is a podcast that I do with a therapist at Renew Church, and we kick around issues like dating, mental health, and friendships. And lastly, there's a children's book series and a journal that I wrote with my wife and my mentor, and we'd love for you to look at those resources as well. Thank you so much for being a part of the Renew Church family, and I hope that you enjoy the sermon today. God bless. All right, everyone, if I could have your attention up here, please. Thank you so much. Sounds like you're fans of something, right? Very cool. All right, if I could have your attention up here. Like I said before, I'm so excited to get back into our study in Luke. Uh, Today we find ourselves in Luke chapter 8. So if you want to take your uh, devices or your Bibles, uh, you can go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 8. And I'm excited about this particular parable. Uh, It's very near and dear to my heart, and I believe it will be uh, of great, great blessing to you as well. So let's just get right into it. In Luke chapter 8, we're going to look at this parable. If you're taking notes, I'm usually very note-friendly. So uh, the first point I want to give is the context of the parable. Can we put it up, please? The context of the parable, all right? And so we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 8. Let's look uh, in verses 1 through 3. It says, after this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, as also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the the manager of Herod's household. Uh, Susanna and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. And so here, Jesus is in the north, in the region called Galilee. And there are vast multitudes that are following Jesus everywhere he goes. Why is that? It's because they have never seen anyone like him before. Jesus speaks with authority, authority that is unlike any of the other teachers and leaders. He heals supernaturally. No one had seen the healings that he had been doing on a regular basis as he was uh, in his ministry. You see, God had been silent for 400 years since the prophet Malachi had prophesied. And he was the last prophet of the Old Testament. But he prophesied that a Messiah would come and fulfill all that Jesus was doing. All the teaching, all the healing, all the helping of, um, of the people of Israel. And so because of that, he was like a rock star in popularity. Crowds of thousands were going wherever he went. And so here here Jesus is going from town to town, proclaiming the truth of the gospel of the kingdom of God. And I want you to notice who he's with. Luke gives us this. His 12 disciples and these women who were healed of certain diseases and were cured and exercised of certain demons. Here Luke wants us to focus on this and know the kind of people, the kind of disciples that Jesus was with. These women who, by the way, 
were insignificant in the grand scheme of things in, in Jesus' time in the first century. And two, these blue-collar uh, blue workers and people that were being healed of different things. They were the disciples. Now, we're going to come back to that later on, but just keep that in the back of your mind. Now, let's look in verse 4. While a large crowd was gathering and people were coming to Jesus from town after town, he told this parable. So Jesus begins to teach them in parables. Now, here's the question. What is a parable? What is a parable? Well, a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. That's the best way to put it. It's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. It's a simple earthly story. It's easily recognizable to the hearers of that time. It's extremely relevant to the people of that culture. But within this earthly story contains a deep, profound spiritual meaning. It is a simple story that conveys a profound divine truth about the kingdom of God. So we know this. Let's look in verse 5. It says, A farmer went out to sow his seed. And as he was gathering the seed, some fell along the path, and it was trampled on, and the birds ate it up. Verse 6, some fell on rocky ground, and when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Verse 7, other seed fell among thorns, which grew up with it and choked the plants. Verse 8, still other seed fell on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop a hundred times more than it was sown. And when he said this, he called out, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. So this story is about a farmer and his seeds. And it would have been a familiar sight to everyone around Galilee. Because this was a daily routine that they saw and witnessed every day. Farmers sowing their seed. As a matter of fact, Galilee had fields as far as the eye could see. So in this story, the farmer is sowing his seed. And in those days, they would, cap, uh, they would take these big bags of seed, either put them on their shoulder or put it on their pack animals... And all they would do is they would scatter it in the field. Wherever they would go, they would scatter these seeds. So the story is very exciting. It's all about um, these seeds that fall into one soil, and then it falls into another soil. And then it falls into another soil. And then finally it falls into another soil. Exciting, isn't it? Not at all. It's not exciting at all. This was a mundane occurrence that happened all the time. And so I can imagine these crowds of thousands are saying, Jesus, why are you telling, something that, uh, telling us something that we already know? And that begs the question, why? Why tell this story? Well, that brings us into our second point, the purpose of the parable. If we could put it up, the purpose of the parable. Let's look uh, in verse 9. Can we put the purpose of this parable up? Thank you so much. Okay. In verse 9 now, his disciples asked him, what this parable meant. Okay, and in the book of Matthew, when it talks about the same parable, Matthew says the disciples actually uh, asked a, a, a follow-up question, um, which was more um, uh, specific. It says, why do you speak to the people in these parables? So the disciples are saying, why are you giving us this story about farmers and seeds? Why aren't you speaking plainly to the crowds like you speak to us or like you spoke on the Sermon on the Mount? So from this time until the end of his earthly ministry, Jesus speaks to the crowds most, almost exclusively in parables. So the disciples are asking, why parables? Now, parables with an explanation, they're good. But parables without an explanation, they're just riddles, right? You have to guess 
what the right meaning is. And so here the disciples are asking this question, and I want you to notice what Jesus says in verse 10. And Jesus said, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom, kingdom of God have been given to you, but to others I speak in parables so that though seeing they may not see, though hearing they may not understand. Now think about how shocking this answer is. Do you think Jesus would even say this? In a time where we're so into uh, uh, being inclusive and being equitable, this doesn't sound very equitable, does it? This doesn't sound uh, fair at all. As a matter of fact, we're trying to be inclusive. There's thousands coming to see Jesus. Why is he being so exclusive? And here's my point. Get this. Jesus is saying, Jesus is saying that his parables are designed for those who want to pursue Jesus as Messiah. They will be the ones blessed with the realities of the kingdom truth. But for those who don't want to pursue Jesus as Messiah, the truth just passes them by. Though seeing, they won't see. Though hearing, they won't understand. See, Matthew's gospel puts it this way. And I put this up here. Can we put it up? It's so good. Matthew 13. Jesus replied, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given to you, but to them, uh, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken away from them. What does that mean? Well, whoever has, what does that mean? Whoever has the desire to pursue Jesus as a disciple will be given more. More of what? More desire, more truth, more power, more insight, more blessing. These are all the byproducts of pursuing Jesus. And they will have it in abundance, Jesus says. But whoever does not have, what does that mean? It means whoever does not have the desire to pursue Jesus as his disciple, even what they have, that waning, flickering uh, little interest that might uh, arise, will be taken away from them. And by the way, that's what this parable is teaching. Jesus speaks in parables so that those who really desire to follow him as Messiah will get it. And they'll get it in abundance. And those who have different agendas will not get it at all. Remember the context. Jesus is speaking to the crowd of thousands gathered, but they all have different motivations and agendas. Some are there to discredit him. They want to know what his tricks are. They think he's a charlatan, and they want to know the magic tricks. Those are called the skeptics. Many are awed by his miracles, and they want to see more of this spiritual uh, supernatural transformation. They're the thrill seekers. Some are there to trap him. They're threatened by him and they hate him, so they want to destroy him. Those are the religious leaders. Others want to use him for their political agenda. Those are called the zealots. Some just want free stuff. They want free food. They know Jesus provides, right, and multiplies food, and so they're there for free stuff. We call them the freeloaders, okay? Many are looking for a new spiritual fad. He's the new flavor of the week, and so they're there for that. We call them the fickle. In this crowd, Jesus is not concerned with skeptics or thrill-seekers or self-righteous or zealots or freeloaders or the fickle. Jesus is only concerned with those who want to hear his truth and to follow him as his disciples. You see, his aim has always been the same, is to make disciples. Those who will embrace him as Lord and Savior and those who are committed to his messianic kingdom. And so parables can be seen as a vetting process. Jesus' parables are a filter. 
It's designed to drive those who are hungry and thirsty for Jesus to pursue his truth and to know him more, while at the very same time, it leaves those who are uninterested in his truth and agenda where they are. Does that make sense? Can I get an amen? Okay, let me give you a great example of this. And by the way, I'm going to use my daughter, Alexis, as an example. She's here today. I wasn't expecting her to be here. And uh, that's okay. I'm excited about it. But uh, I wanted to share with you. She, I'm so embarrassed when I say this, but she really is the love of my life. And I love her, okay? And uh, I want to show a picture. This is uh, actually Alexis and I, you know, uh, a couple uh, months ago when we were in New York, okay? And so um, she's 18 years old, okay? She's my only daughter, my one and only, right? And next month, she'll be going to UCLA, okay? Um, have I told you that she's going to UCLA? Have I shared that before? <laughs> all right, anyway, all right. <laughs> thank you, thank you. So I'm so proud of her, okay? Um, and as a kid, right, I was the only man in her life, okay? And I remember when she was a kid, she would say this on many occasions, Daddy, I want to live with you for the rest of my life. And whoa, that felt so good, right? <laughs> But I should have got it on paper, okay? I should have made a contract with her because when she became a teenager, she changed. And everything changed. Because no longer was I the man in her life. I was replaced by BTS, okay? <laughs> BTS was what she really loved, okay? They were the men in her life, okay? She had posters on her wall. She had a light stick. I don't know if you guys know what the light sticks are. She had a light stick proudly displayed. And um, I realized I had been replaced by seven androgynous, pale, skinny, makeup-wearing, <laughs> multi-haired colored South Korean boys, right? And she loved them. She listened to them all the time. But to make matters worse, okay, my wife, Joanne, who's here, is totally into BTS now because of my daughter. She loves them, too, and I don't know how to feel about that, right? Because both of them belong to the BTS fan club. They're called, do you guys know what they're called? The Army. Some of you are actually in the Army, too. I'm not, but some of you are, right? And since uh, they are in the B uh, BTS army, right, they have these biases, right? My wife has a bias. My daughter had a bias, you know. Um, if you don't know what bias is, we can talk about that later, okay? But they had that. And, uh, you know, they knew when the pop-up stores would appear with special merchandise. Uh, they, along with a lot of the army, would discuss the philosophy of the albums, the meaning of the songs, they even know where BTS is, okay? I remember a couple months ago, we were in Koreatown. This black, uh, uh, large uh, limousine uh, uh, pulled up. Uh, it was an SUV limousine, and the security guards came out, and, and Jungkook kind of popped out, okay? I didn't know who Jungkook was, but immediately, my wife and daughter, they're like, isn't that Jungkook? And they got so excited, and I'm like, who's Jungkook, you know, and everything. But they were excited. So my wife actually uh, started texting uh, another uh, army. She's, uh, she's like 60 years old, right? And she was texting her saying, we just saw Jungkook. And she's like, yeah, I know. He's supposed to be in that area, right? And I'm like, they even know, you know, what area they're going to be? And so my wife and daughter actually went to a concert. I wanted to show you that. Uh, went to a concert. They have their light sticks and everything. They had such a good time. Now, I say all this to say I don't have the same experience with BTS that my wife and daughter have. I'm not in the army. I don't really know their songs. I know they sound good, but I don't know their songs. I don't really understand their philosophy or the meaning behind those songs. What I'm saying is I don't see, I see BTS on TV, but I don't care, okay? I hear BTS on YouTube, but I don't get it, 
right? It's the idea, though seeing, they may not see. Though hearing, they may not understand, right? I don't experience BTS the same way that they do. My wife and daughter, they see BTS, right? They hear BTS. They understand BTS. I do not, right? You know, it's, it's interesting. Uh, next week, I'm taking my daughter, before she goes to UCLA, I'm taking her to see Blackpink at Dodger Stadium, okay? Some of you are Blackpink fans. You know what they're called, the fans? Oh, you don't? Okay, I'll, I'll educate you. They're called Blink, okay? So uh, all the Blinks are going to be at Dodger Stadium. Um, before she goes to uh, UCLA, they're going to go there. And I remember I had this conversation with my daughter where she looked at me. She goes, Dad, you need to start memorizing the songs, right? <laughs> you got to know what the songs are when they come up, right? And so she's like, hey, let's go buy a light stick for you. we got to buy a Blink light stick for you. And I remember looking at my daughter, uh, sorry, honey, uh, and, and saying, I'm so sorry, hon. I said, you know, I am not a blink, and so I don't care, you know? <laughs> I just, you, you are not going to have as fun of a time like you did with mom, right? And that's so true, right? Because I am not, I'm not into them, right? I like their songs. You know, I know some of them, but, you know, I, I don't know all their songs. But the more Alexis pursues, the more what my wife pursues, right, they see, they understand, they experience but for me, I see it, but I don't see it. I hear it, but I don't hear it. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying. It's designed to drive those who are hungry and thirsty to pursue and know and be blessed. While at the very same time, these parables leave those who are uninterested in this truth and agenda where they are. Do you, do you understand? So you might say, okay, I understand the purpose of the parable, but why? Why will some pursue Jesus and others dismiss him? Why will some believe and others reject? Why will some commit and others fall away? Why will some produce fruit and some become uh, unfruitful? And for that, we want to look at our third point. Can we look at it? The meaning of the parable. Here, Jesus conceals it from the crowds, but he reveals it to his disciples. Let's look in verse 11. This is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. Now, let me ask you, do you remember, and this is kind of unfair because you know, this was a while back. But do you remember uh, that I put up a Starbucks gift card and I said, uh, if you can answer this question, I'll give you this gift card. And no one could answer it. And the, the question was, what did Jesus say was the reason he was born and why he came into the world? And we got so many great answers, but all of them were wrong, okay? They're all right in the sense that everything that was shared was definitely biblical, but they were wrong and they couldn't answer this very specific question. Because, and this is why it was so tough, Jesus answered, answers it only once in the Bible. And it's found in John 18 and verse 37. It says this, Jesus answered, I was born and I came into the world for one purpose, to speak about the truth. So from the time he began his earthly ministry, Jesus' main thing was proclaiming the truth of God's word. And so when we look at this parable, Jesus is the farmer who is sowing the seed. What is the seed? It's the truth of the word of God. So Jesus in this parable is the sower of truth. He's the farmer. For this reason I was born, for this reason I came into the world. And so he scatters the word of God everywhere. In the temple, in the synagogue, in the marketplace, in the, on the mountains, in the plains, in houses, at parties, wherever he goes. And can I share this with you? The farmer and the seed are perfect. Meaning that if the crop fails, it's not because of Jesus and his word. They are the constant, I like to say. 
Well, then what is the variable? If you have a constant, you need to have a variable. The only variable in this story is the soil. The variable is what kind of soil the seed goes into. Depending on what soil the seed enters determines who believes, who pursues, who commits, and who produces. It is all dependent on the soils. So we want to look quickly at the soils. Number one, we want to see that the pathway soil represents a hard heart. Okay, let's look in verse 12. Those along the path are the ones who hear, and the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. This is the hard beaten path. People have walked so much on the soil that now it has become a pathway. So no seed can penetrate the callous soil in order to grow. That In verse 5, that phrase being trampled upon means not to receive it. It has the idea of not appropriating or applying the seed or the word of God. So this kind of heart tramples the truth. God's word is never appropriated into the life. The devil comes, the Bible says, and takes away the word from their hearts. So Satan snatches the precious truth of God's word that is not embraced in our lives and applied in our lives. You know the greatest example of this are the Pharisees? They were always there in the crowds to see Jesus. They were with the thousands that had come to see Jesus. But isn't it ironic that the group who should have had the softest hearts toward Jesus because of their great Bible knowledge, actually had the hardest hearts. They're the ones who memorized the whole Hebrew Bible. That's that's not, you know, a small thing to do. They were the Bible teachers. They were the biblical authority. But yet, isn't it ironic that the ones who memorized all that there was to know about the prophesied Messiah didn't recognize him when he finally came to them? Why is that? It's because they had knowledge devoid of a relationship with God. You see, Jesus told them, Uh, I've come from God, so if you don't love me, it's because you don't know God. What a tremendous indictment on the Pharisees. You know what this tells us? That you can intellectually know the truth without ever appropriating truth in your life. Can I get an amen? amen? See, we know that knowledge puffs up. This is in every area of life, you know? I have been shamed at a coffee shop for putting cream in my pour over by the barista right? Where he says, what are you doing? Just get a latte, you know? What are you doing? You should, you're ruining your coffee. And I'm thinking to myself, why are you telling me this? You know why? Because he's puffed up, right? Because he has this passion and knowledge and it's coming out the wrong way. It really is, right? Get a latte. What are you talking about? I can do whatever I want, right? You've heard CrossFit people, right? Ah, you work out in your garage? You don't work out in a box? You know, not all CrossFit people are like that. But you know what I'm talking about, right? Or how about the keto people? You eat carbs? You know how bad carbs are for you? You never heard of paleo, right? It's because of their passion for their knowledge that puffs puffs them up and makes them snobs. And pride is like that. Pride is always connected to hardness of heart. Hubris and hardness go hand in hand. And that pride can blind you from the truth, just like it did the Pharisees. How does the heart become hard? It's constant, continual rejection of God's truth. You know, I am not a techie person. Anyone that knows me knows this. So simple things, you know, uh, are just wow to me, right? One thing I love is I love the trash icon on my uh, on my iPhone and on my iPad. I love that little trash thing. It makes that noise, right? <laughs> I am enamored with that, right? It's like a Neanderthal looking at fire. 
But I get so excited about that. Why? Because I love to clean up my stuff, right? And especially my emails, you know? When I get an email about a Nigerian prince offering me $25 million, I push that trash icon and it goes away, right? If there's some spam email with some inappropriate thing that they want to sell me, I take it away, right? If Pastor Wilson, you know, emails me for something I need to do for church, I, you know, I put it away. Yes, yes. Yeah, it makes sense. It makes sense, all right? So I love that trash icon. But you know what we do many times? We do that with the word of God. When God's word and the Holy Spirit are telling us to do something, or when God's word gives us a command, or when God's word gives us instructions that we don't like or we don't want to do, don't we do that sometimes, right? And a hard heart is developed when we continually reject the truth of God's word. The second point is the rocky soil. It represents the shallow heart. Let's look in verse 13. Those on the rocky ground are the ones who receive the word with joy. Stop right there. Here's good news. The heart receives truth with joy. That's what this heart does. There's emotion, and there's an emotional response to the word of God. This person in the crowds who excitedly affirms Jesus because they're awed by his miracles and his healing, and they see transformation uh, right there, their very eyes. They see what's happening, and so they enthusiastically want to follow Jesus. But let's continue reading in verse 13. But they have no root, and they believe for a while. You see, the rocky soil, seeds go in and grow fast initially, but because the root cannot break through the barrier of rocks, they are unable to go down deep and receive the moisture and nutrients that are needed to grow. And so it only lasts for a short time. This is the kind of heart that remains shallow because there's no deep root of commitment. Here we see that in this soil, Jesus is a genie. Rub his lamp and get your wishes granted. Get your fantasies fulfilled. And so they're excited to follow Jesus as long as he fulfills their desires. They're excited about God's word as long as it meets their felt needs and their expectations. The late Tim Keller said it this way about this particular group. When they became Christians, they imagined they were entering Jesus' kingdom, but in reality, what was really happening was they were recruiting Jesus into their kingdom. You see, that's a vast difference, entering Jesus' kingdom and recruiting Jesus for your kingdom. You see, that's a shallow heart that's selfish and self-centered and full of self-interest. And here's the indicator to detect and identify a shallow heart. Verse 13, in time of testing, they will fall away. What constitutes testing? Well, Matthew, when he talks about these particular people, right, and he becomes very specific, and he constitutes testing as number one, trials, and number two, persecution. Number one, trials, number two, persecution. Trials and persecution is the one-two punch that knocks out the rocky soil. Get it? One-two punch, oh, yeah. rocky soil. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. They say, I thought I'd be rich when I became a Christian. That's what my prosperity teachers told me. But it's not happening. I thought I'd be healed, but this cancer has become more aggressive. I thought I'd be honored in the community, but I'm ridiculed and persecuted for my Christianity. So Christianity is not meeting my expectations. I'm going to cash out, peace out Jesus, right? And so trial and persecution reveal what is inside the heart. And only those committed to Jesus will withstand that kind of heavyweight barrage. The third point 
Thorny soil represents the divided heart. Let's look at it. Verse 14. The seed that fell among the thorns stand for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. So the word for thorn, acanthus, was actually the name of a thorny weed common in Israel and frequently found in cultivated soil. And by the way, it was a major reason for killing crops in Galilee. So what was the acanthus that kills fruitfulness? Well, Jesus says, number one, it's the worries of life, the issues of the day. We can get so consumed with day-to-day matters that can overwhelm us and get us away from Jesus. Number two, pleasures. It's the distractions of entertainment and amusement that become so much a part of our life that it gets us away from Jesus. Or riches, the deceitfulness of wealth. You see, these three things can be gods in our lives. Now, let me ask you, how is wealth deceitful? It's because all of our hopes and dreams, our desires, and even our security can be tied to having wealth. So that when we, we can be deceived into thinking that if we have wealth, we have all these things. And it's a lie. Because wealth can be a false god giving us false promises. You know what Jesus says to that in Matthew 6, 24? No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and wealth, right? Those three things are not evil in and of themselves. As a matter of fact, they're a part of our lives, daily issues, amusement, money. But they become a toxic acanthus when we make them the gods that we serve. And the divided heart attempts to serve two masters, Jesus and the world. And this heart wants Christ and their addictions, This heart worships Messiah and materialism. This heart desires the Lord, but won't let go of the world. And the end is fruitlessness, the Bible tells us. Let's look at the fourth one. Let's let's end there. Good soil represents a fruitful heart. Uh, Verse 15. But the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. Now, I want you to notice a couple things. Notice, the Bible says this soil is noble and good because all the ways that it's not like the other soils. It's not callous and dismissive of truth. Rather, it humbly embraces God's word and seeks to appropriate all, not some, but all of it, to life. It's not shallow or self-centered. Rather, it commits deeply to obeying God's word despite trials or persecution. It doesn't vacillate between two masters, Rather, it faithfully, single-mindedly pursues Jesus as Lord and Savior of life. The Bible tells us, and Jesus says, this heart hears, retains, and perseveres. I want you to notice also that this soil is not perfect soil, okay? Jesus was not looking for the best and brightest, the cream of the crop, the most, social, the most self-righteously moral who followed every rule perfectly, That's not what Jesus is looking at. If you look in verse 1 through 3, we just talked about it. Jesus came with his disciples, and they were average blue-collar people, and they were women with horrific pasts. And that's so interesting, isn't it? You know, one uh, thing when I I, uh, have uh, anything, breakfast, lunch, dinner, coffee, with new people, the one thing that comes up is they always like the phrase that uh, we're known for, and that is, for imperfect people only. It resonates with them. And you know, that's what church is. It's for imperfect people only. Can I get an amen? Amen. Because that's all of us, isn't it? 
So God is not asking us to be perfect because we can't be perfect. He's not looking for the best and brightest. These disciples were blessed disciples because they were good soil in verse 15 because they had committed themselves to Jesus the Messiah. So it's not about being perfect soil. It's all about being the right soil. And that's what these people were that Jesus uh, came with. They were right soil people. And Jesus says that the right soil produces a crop. And I want you to notice the result is exponential fruitless, uh, fruitfulness. Okay? This is the most important verse of the parable. It's found in verse 8. Would you look at it? It says, Still other seed fell on good soil, and it came up and yielded a crop a hundred times more than was sown. This is the punchline of the parable. Okay? The crowds in Galilee would have <gasps> been so bored by this bland story that they knew too well, except for this per, uh, important point. And the point was 100 times the yield. That would have stopped them and surprised them. Because in the first century, listen to me, okay, even if you did everything right, the yield for a harvest would be seven times the yield. And Jesus is not saying seven times. He's saying 100 times. And I'm sure the Galileans were sitting there thinking, these are fantasy numbers. 100 times the yield? What are we playing fantasy farming here? You know, that's impossible. We can't do this. But Jesus was saying, yes, in the power of the Holy Spirit, you can do this. Because this is what happens when Jesus, who is perfect, sows his seed, which is perfect, into the right soil of a disciple. What happens? Supernatural results occur. And if you want to know the proof to that, Jesus' first century disciples turned the world upside down. His 12 disciples in their time had 100 times the yield in that they went to all the nations. Amen? What were they called, the fans of Jesus? What were they called? They weren't blinks. They weren't army. You know what they were called? Christians, right? Christians, little Christs. And that's exactly what they did. They followed their master. And this is why Jesus says, I speak in parables. Because the right soil will hear, retain, and persevere God's truth to produce supernatural, exponential fruit. So as Jesus is sowing his seed this morning, and make no mistake, he is sowing his seed this morning. I have one question for you. Which soil are you? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that as we look into it, we are always blessed and rewarded. We know that these parables are for us. We know that as we look and pursue you, as we embrace you, as we appropriate you into our lives, that we will be a blessing not only in our lives, but to others as well. Father, give us 100% of the yield. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us today. We're really grateful that you'd spend time listening to the sermon series. And we also wanted to point you to a few other resources. My wife and I wrote a children's book collection helping kids bridge their faith with God's calling in their life as a businessman, as a doctor or nurse, and as a creative. Secondly, we wrote an adulting journal, which helps young adults think through this transition into adulthood, whether it's transitions in friendship, family, faith, or calling. And lastly, I want to point to a podcast that myself and another church member, Roy Kim, who's a therapist, co-hosts together. It's called The Same Boat. We talk about relationships. We just finished um, a series on dating. We think back to an English ministry church, and we just tackle all kinds of topics 
that are relevant to our life. I hope that uh, those resources enrich your life as well. And lastly, if you're looking to partner with us on our website, we have a give section. You could give to our general fund and continue to serve our church through um, through partnering with us financially. But if you scroll down, we have quite a few local missionaries that have called Renew Home. If you read their bio, there's also a section to give to each one of our local missionaries. We hope that all of them would be fully funded going into this year. God bless you. Thanks so much for being with us and uh, hope to hear, hope to uh, have you join us again.